you want to take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament book of Daniel. We're kind of spending time in the first six chapters, and so be prepared to follow along. We'll be doing some reading from just about all those chapters this morning, so you can kind of follow along as we move along. Uh, I need to start off today by giving credit. I forgot to do this last week. Um, I had someone send me a, an email this week and like, oh, I really like Daniel. Daniel's one of my favorite people. And did you know that there's a, a, a video on Right Now Media called Thriving in Babylon? Yes, I knew that because I'm using that study called Thriving in Babylon kind of as inspiration for our sermon series, Thriving in Babylon, not just surviving. So I've added my own little bit to it, but... But uh, it's, a, it's a, a video series called Thriving in Babylon. Uh, it's hosted by a pastor, Larry Osborne. Um, if you have access to Right Now Media, if, you're, if you've signed up to the account that we've given you, I would encourage you to watch it. Uh, I'm, like I said, I'm using that kind of for the inspiration for these sermons, and you'll, you'll hear some of the same thoughts. Uh, but, but what he has on the videos that we don't have here is there's some real-life stories, some some uh, they interview people and and uh, that adds to the whole study. So if you get a chance to watch that, I would encourage you to do that. I think you'd be touched by some of those stories. I'm going to share one of those a little later today. And so what we're talking about is thriving in Babylon. Just kind of coming to the grips that the world in which we live, the uh, even our immediate context is much more like Babylon than than heaven. <laughs> And uh, it's very Babylon-esque in our, in our mindsets and in, in the way the world functions and in the evil that's growing. Um, as the world seems to be moving mo further and further away from God. Um, and here we are living in that context. Last week, and so we we're looking at Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel and the boys, as some people call, call to talk about it. You know, they were kind of the first boy band, the first little boy group, Daniel and the boys. Uh, <laughs> and so we've been looking at some of the mindsets that Daniel helped him thrive in Babylon. And we, and we defined a couple of words. We defined what we meant by thriving. Um, that's not physical prosperity. That's not, you know, having all, all that. It's, it, it's really, here's what I think it is for a human to thrive. Uh, the most thriving humans have always been defined by having and maintaining a flourishing relationship with God. I mean, that's what we were actually created for, is to have and maintain a flourishing relationship for, with God. And for us to be what God intended for us to be, for us to have the life that God wants us to have, it depends on uh, very much on how that relationship with God goes. Now, you can be prosperous, um, and you can have all the wealth in the world, but the Bible says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And so really what I'm considering as my definition of thriving is having and maintaining a flourishing relationship with, with God. And we see Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego really thrive. Their, their relationship with the Lord flourishes during their captivity in the years they spend in Babylon. They're in, in what is probably the gold standard of evil in, in all of history and their relationship with the Lord just gets better and better and better all along. And they put him on public display. They bring glory and honor to him. They affect the people around them. Uh, you know, he is a kind of a, a good example of what it is to live in a, in a non-Christian world or a non-godly world and bring glory to God and thrive in that relationship. And really that's what I want for all of us. And hopefully uh, you, you can see why this is what we are called to do. 
And the first mindset Daniel had was that he had trust in God's sovereignty, that, that God, the way that, that Larry Osborne says it is, God's in control of who's in control, that, that ultimately God is in, in control. And if God has any type of control whatsoever, then, uh, which is plainly said at least five or so times during the, these first six chapters of Daniel's, then that assures us of a couple of things. First, that God is aware of what's happening. He's not caught off guard. He's not caught by surprise. He's not, oh, never saw that coming. And God is working. And so there's a lot of assurance that comes when we can understand that God is aware and God's working. And it's probably one of the major contributors, this idea that God is aware and God is working, is probably the major contributors to to Daniel's second mindset that helped him thrive in Babylon. And that was a vibrant hope. That Daniel lived with a, a really vibrant hope that, that he saw or recognized in every situation there's possible good. <laughs> that something good could happen out of this. I'm not sure that we face all the situations we face in the world with the conviction that something good could happen or come out of this. But, but Daniel seems to just trudge forward in life with hope after hope after hope. Now, let's talk about the idea of hope and what I mean here today as I, as I start to talk about us growing and cultivating our hope. Hope can be defined a couple ways. It can be a noun, which is the feeling that, uh, the feeling that what is wanted can be had or, or the events will turn out for the best. And that's something we possess inside of us, and we like that feeling. You know, We, we have the feeling that something good's going to happen, or this could turn out for good, or, or God will use that. And, and that's kind of a noun, and that's something we kind of just hold on to. But I want us to think about hope as a verb, as something we do, as an action that we have, not just something we possess, but something we actually do. And when it's defined that way, it's to look forward with desire and reasonable confidence. That you, you, you plan, you chart your life, you look forward with hope. And so hope guides your action. It influences the things you do. And so I want us to think about, you know, an active hope, a living hope, not just, not just the feeling we hold on to in those dark moments, but, but a, a, an action that guides us in how to live in the world in which we live. And so that's kind of the way I want us to at least approach hope. Think about hope kind of as a, as a continuum that that when we use the word hope, it ranges somewhere from wishful thinking to, to confident certainty. And that, that somewhere on that continuum is our each individual hope. I'll give you some examples. On the wishful thinking end, something like, you know, the Steelers are going to make the playoffs. You can have that hope if you want to, but you're kind of over on that side of things. For me, a little bit more confident certainty is I have a hope. Uh, I get the, uh, we're planning a family vacation during the week of Thanksgiving this year. And it'd be the first time I've been to my family uh, in South Carolina in Thanksgiving in, well, I don't know, a long time, 20 some years maybe. And so I have this hope that this will be a really good family time and a fun time and and my kids will get to see what I did as a kid and we're making plans we're going to have a dove shoot and we're going to have a low country boil and we're going to do all these South Carolina things 
You know, and so, and so my hope in that, there's a little bit more confident certainty that, that that's going to that's gonna be a good experience. And, and, I, and I'm kind of, just to be honest with you, I'm just hoping that November gets here pretty quick because I'm looking forward to that time. Now, it's my family, and I realize that at any given moment, things could take a turn for the worse, but, but my, my certainty, my confidence is pretty high as we move forward to that. And so I'm, I'm more over on that side of things. And so the first question I want you to think about is, if you were to chart yourself, where's the hope that you live by? Do you, you spend your time just kind of grasping at hope, just wishful thinking, just I just really hope, I just really, or, or do you live with a more uh, confident certainty that, you know, God's in control, God's able, God notices, God is aware, God is working, I will trust in God. You know, and so if you were to, you know, if you draw a line right down the middle, which side are your hope, is your hope on? Now, I understand, and you do too, that, that hope in our life is kind of in this continual flux, right? We, we're up and down, back and forth on the continuum, depending on the day, depending on what we're talking about, the subject, depending on the mood you woke up in that morning, depending on, you know, how well-fed you are, if you're, if you're hangry or not, you know, if you've got low blood sugar, your hope might diminish. Yeah, the, the weather, <laughs> will even affect our hope. And so we understand, but by in general, where would you say your hope lies? Where on that continuum do you fall? And what I really hope to be able to do today by the end of this series or by the end of this sermon is, is talk about some real life ways for you to move your hope from wherever it is further to the right, further towards the confidence, further towards the certainty, because hope can be moved. It's not something that, that we don't have some control over because it's a verb. It's something we can do. It's something we can affect. And so that's where we hope to get to, <laughs> hope to get to. Uh, I'm fairly confident in that. If we do the things the Bible says, our hope will grow. So let's first, first of all, let's just take a, a couple of looks at Daniel and, and get some, some nuggets about hope. As we look at him living in hope, I want you to see what he did. We'll start off with Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through 13. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food and with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So, he would be, uh, so you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of eunuchs was uh, assigned over Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah to test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. And so Daniel's presented this, he's captured, and he's presented this food, he makes this decision, I don't want to eat things that, that are against my religion, against, literally, against my, the laws I hold to. He doesn't want to defile himself. And so he asks... Uh, he goes to the eunuch. I mean, this is an act of hope. You know, maybe this guy will listen to me. Let me approach the guy who's in charge of me and ask him if it's okay if I don't do this. And then, and then when they get in this conversation, the eunuch, the, this chief steward's scared. And like, if, if I don't do my job, the, the you know, Nebuchadnezzar's going to cut my head off. 
And, and so then Daniel says, well, let's, let's try it. Let's try it. Let's see what happens, you know. Feed, feed us vegetables and water. Feed everybody else what the king says. And let's see. That is a hope-filled statement. That is hope in action. That's a living, active hope. That He puts it all on the line and he, he believes. He, he has this conviction, a confidence and conviction that, that it's going to be okay. That God's going to show up. That if he, if he sticks with God, then God's going to stick with him. And, and, and it's going to be okay. And he's like, let's put it to the test. Let's see what it is. I mean, that is actually a very living hope. He, he tested himself in the hope that God would show the wisdom of God. And as you know, he did. Turn over to Daniel chapter 2, verses 13 through 19. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. This is when Nebuchadnezzar had, a, had the dream and he wanted to get all the wise men to tell him not just the interpretation of the dream, but first he said, well, tell me the dream and then tell me the interpretation. He wouldn't even tell them what the dream was. Uh, it says, and so, so when no one could do that, he decreed that it went out that the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel were pride with prudence and, and discretion to uh, Arioch the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is this decree of the king so urgent? And Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. Verse 16, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show him the interpretation of the king. This is, this is a big, Daniel goes in to Nebuchadnezzar and says, can I have some time? You give, me a, give me a little time and to see if I can come up with the interpretation, if the Lord will reveal it to me. Because Daniel later on will admit it's not from him, that it comes from the Lord. And again, here's a request that's a hope-filled request. He's hoping that Nebuchadnezzar, who's just assigned everybody to die, won't say, nope, off with your head. It's a hope-filled request. He walks in. He, can you imagine the hope in God? You have to walk in to King Nebuchadnezzar and say, can I have a 24 hours? Can I have 12 hours? Can I have two days? What, you know, can I have some time and see if God will tell this to me? And he goes on. Then Daniel went. So, so apparently he got an affirmative, which is an amazing thing, this evil king, right? But then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them, seek mercy from God of heaven coming uh, concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So he goes to the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we usually refer to them, and says, pray. Pray the prayer of hope. Go to God and ask Him to reveal this, because if God doesn't step in and reveal this, well, we're, we're done. And so he even prays. So he asks, he makes his request to the king of earth in hope, and then he goes to the king of kings, and makes another request, a hope-filled request. Will you tell me what's going on? Uh, all these requests and these actions are, are founded in hope. Let's look at one more event here uh, before I make my first, my kind of one of the points about hope that we need to see. In chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we have, not, we have no need to answer you on this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods 
or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is again the passage I talked about last week as we closed out, you know, that even if kind of question. And there's no way you ever get to saying even if if you don't have a whole lot of hope in God. And that's really what they, they said. We know God can and they go as far as say he will deliver us out of your hand. There's a strong confidence. <laughs> they walk into the, with, into the fire furnace with their hope way over there on that side. God can and we're expecting him too. But even if he doesn't, we are not going to bow down to the golden image. And so the, the first point I want to make is hope leads to abandonment. In all these cases, we see these guys in the direst of situations. And they got nowhere to turn but where their hope is. And their hope is in God. And they turn to Him. They abandon themselves to God. It's funny, when you look through the Scriptures, and every time I, I try to do a study on the word abandonment, and it's always kind of in the negative. It's always, don't abandon us, God. Don't abandon us, God. Why have you abandoned us, God? Over and over in the Psalms, the psalmist is crying out, feel like, feels like he's been abandoned by God. Um, and, and there's, but there's also a sense that, and it just usually rephrases it, that we're supposed to abandon everything else for God. We're supposed to abandon ourselves to God. Uh, interesting from Luke chapter 14, verse 33, the verse that uh, interestingly we were reading publicly. I didn't realize that's where we were at. It says, therefore, anyone who, wants, who does not renounce all uh, that he has cannot be my disciple. You know, the passage that J Daniel, you've got to love me more than your mama and your daddy and your brother and your sister and your children and your family and more than anything. You've got to abandon yourself to me. I've got to be number one. And you will abandon all for me. There was a popular song back in the 80s that was, you know, we have abandoned it all for the sake of the call. That we give up everything to be a follower of Christ. And it's because of hope, when we hope rightly in God, that helps us get to the place of abandonment. If you don't have any hope in who God is, then you're not going to give yourself to Him. You're not going to abandon everything else for Him. But you've got to have a steady, strong hope. And we see these guys over and over and over faced with things that would make many of us crumble. And yet they, they just lay it all in line. Test us. Let's see what happens. I'm going into the fiery furnace, so let's see what happens. You know, I'm going to go pray to God to give me the interpretation of a dream. Let's see what happens. Over and over and over, they throw themselves fully on God and who He is because they hope that He will answer their request and will be aware and working in their lives. And so hope is what really leads us to abandonment. <clears throat> in Daniel chapter 4, verses 19 then 26 and 27, it says this, And Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, uh, let, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, my dream be for those who hate you, and his interpretations is for your enemies. And this stands out to me as a place where Daniel's hope starts to falter. I mean, he, he's, he, they face the, you know, the, 
the fiery furnace. He's faced being killed by Nebuchadnezzar. He's, he's faced not having the first. This is the second dream that he interprets for Nebuchadnezzar. He's faced that. Uh, and so he comes to Nebuchadnezzar and it says, this is the one place, or one of the one places in Scripture where it says Daniel's, uh, he was dismayed and his thoughts were alarmed. That He's anxious. He, he's worried. He knows what the dream that Nebuchadnezzar meant and he's worried He's afraid, he's concerned to tell Nebuchadnezzar because it's not a good outcome. It's really where he has to tell Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to lose your throne, you're going to lose your power, you're going to eat like a cow, you're going to eat grass, you're going to be like this wild man out in, out in the woods. And he was worried, not because he didn't have the interpretation, but because he had to tell it to Nebuchadnezzar. And he had no assurance of what was going to happen. He had no confidence and how Nebuchadnezzar was going to react. A little later on in verse 26, it says, And this was a command to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you for a time, and you will know the heavens rule. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing, and, and by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He goes so far to tell Nebuchadnezzar, repent, stop doing this evil stuff you're doing. Uh, and so, but he's not, he's like, perhaps, maybe God will be merciful to you. When, what I see in this encounter is Daniel's hope seems to falter a bit because he's changed the subject of that hope. He's no longer reacting to how he feels of God. He's got to put some hope in Nebuchadnezzar. He's hoping Nebuchadnezzar is going to take the bad news well. And it's not very confident hope. He's alarmed. He doesn't even want to say it. Nebuchadnezzar has to kind of pull it out of him. Come on. It's going to be okay. Tell me what. And he's like, but this is for your enemies. This isn't for you. <clears throat> and so we must be aware of putting our hope in humans. In the story of Daniel, the one time his hope seems to falter is when he's got to place it in Nebuchadnezzar and not in God. I'm hoping you're not going to react like I expect you to act. <laughs> I'm hoping you're not going to be the evil king that we all know you to be. I'm hoping that you're going to be patient, which we've not ever seen. Um, and so, but he, he approaches him with a whole lot less confidence than he approached the fiery furnace or approached uh, the other interpretation of dream because now his hope was in, was in a human and not in God. And I think that's a good lesson for us is we need to be careful that our hope is in something secure like God, and not in people or, or things of, of the world. And finally, in Daniel chapter 6, so later in Daniel's life, Darius has become king. The, the people who are jealous of Daniel, they, get, they set up a little trap for him, and, and they, they trap him into getting thrown into the lion's den. And this is number 7. So, so a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king, Darius, Sealed it, sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning David. Verse 18. Then the king, this is Darius, a pagan king, <laughs> went to his palace and spent the night fasting with no diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Verse 19. Then at daybreak, at break of day, the king rose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was. And he cried out uh, in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God 
from whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then I imagine there's just long, dramatic pause. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. He calls out from the thing. And from the one of this thing, here's what I want you to see. And here's, here's really where we start to live in this world. Hope is contagious. King Darius, because he knew who Daniel was and he knew the hope that Daniel had, he, spends, he goes in after putting him in the lion's den and he spends the entire night fasting, quote, praying, doesn't take any of his normal kingly things. He spends the night, he, won't, he stays up all night hoping, hoping that Daniel's going to be alive in the morning. And as soon as day breaks, what does he do? He gets up, he runs to the tomb, quote unquote, lion's den, right? And he calls out. Daniel, Daniel, are you there? He's acting on his hope. It, this could happen. I know what good Daniel's God has done. This might happen. And he shows up, and I hope Daniel's like, shh, be quiet. And lets him suffer for a minute. Like, Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. And finally he answers him, calls out from inside the thing. And, and then Darius, for a moment, felt the same hope that Daniel had lived by his whole life. That folk, hope realized, hope come true, that he did make it through a night in the lion's den. And so hope can be contagious. When we live in this world, when we live in Babylon with a Daniel type of hope, when we display that for the world to see, and when we live and act in hope, other people around us will see it, and they might catch it. <laughs> if we live with it and display it enough. And that hope is in Jesus Christ. And so, depending on where you're at, I, I kind of want to give some practical advice on, on how to, to cultivate your hope. Because hope can be cultivated. It, it's, it's kind of something that flourishes in your heart. And it, it, can, be, it can be strengthened. You can make it grow more. And I'm going to give you three Three kind of practical steps to cultivate hope. If when you look at that continuum, you say, well, you know, I'm not where I want to be. <laughs> There's something you can do to move it. You can get closer. Um, and so the, fir the first thing I think you need to do, and we're going to use kind of a, a, a gardening illustration. So think about your growing hope, your cultivating hope, right? Um, so number one, you need to feed it. You need to feed hope. Uh, you need to fertilize it, you need to water it, you need to make sure it gets sunshine, you need to make sure that the hope, the seed of hope that you have in you because you're a believer in Christ, that you help it grow. And probably the number one source to feed it is the scriptures, is the Bible itself. If you spend time reading the Bible, the Bible is chock full of promises from God. And you read those promises over and over and over you're feeding hope. God said he would never leave us or, or, or forsake us. God said that, he would, uh, that we could cast our cares upon him because he, he cares for us. God said that you will never give up anything for his kingdom that you won't re re reap ten times in the kingdom to come. God said that those who are last shall be first. God said, God said, God said over and over and over. And the more you read that and the more you feed upon that, you'll see your hope growing. And so, and, and for, if we don't feed on that, well, it's not going to grow. Read the stories. 
I mean, we're just talking about the stories of Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. There's Moses, there's Gideon, there's David. There's story after story after story after story of hope. In every case, in the darkest of moments, just before the bottom's about to drop out, God shows up. Over and over. And we need to feed on those stories and remind ourselves the God we serve is the same God today as He was yesterday and will be tomorrow. That these are stories here to give us hope in the darkest of days. We need to know those stories, quote those stories, remember those stories. And not just the stories in the Bible. I've recently, I've taken to audiobooks because I'm kind of a slow reader. And so I can cover a whole lot more ground than somebody to read to me, especially when I'm driving in my car. And so I just started listening to a new book called 50 People Every Christian Should Know. It's a book by Warren Wiersbe. It's, a, it's a biographies, it's short biographies of, of Christian saints throughout history. The first one was of Martin Luther's wife. Not Martin Luther himself, but his wife, who enabled Martin Luther to be all that he could be and what she did um, as, as after they got married. And, and it, covered, it covered, we've talked about, um, I just drew all kind of blanks. They're really good stories. <laughs> I think I'll be listening to them again soon. Someone said there is no such thing as history proper. That all of history is really just biography. The way we know what's happened in the past is we read the biographies of one person, one life leading to another life, to another life. And we have a rich history of Christians who have lived in crazy situations with immense hope. Shelley's listening to a book right now uh, called The Hiding Place that talks about Corey Ten Boom and what she experienced during uh, the concentration camps. And the stories, they're, they're thankful. At one point, they're, they're thanking God for the fleas. Because the fleas kept the guards out of the barracks and they had one of the largest churches in the concentration camp because of the fleas. And I'm like, if God can do that, then what can he do today? We need to feed on the hope and we need to feed our hope on the past that we understand of who God was. And we need to know that and hold on to it. Feed ourselves. Hebrews 12 gives us instructions. Therefore, since you have this great cloud of witnesses around you run with endurance the race that is set before you that we need to feed our hope on the hope of the past and remember that and feed it number two you need to harvest it <laughs> you've had things happen in your life you've had you've experienced hope realized on different occasions in your life and you need to harvest that you need to, to hold on to that. You don't need to leave the fruit on the vine, so to speak. You need to take ownership of that. You need to preserve it. Like when we preserve our garden, right, we can it, right? A lot of you can canners, raise your hand. Freezers, raise your hand. Some people do both, right? We need to do that with our, with our hope realized. We need to journal about it. We need to tell other people about it. Let me tell you when God showed up. Let me, let me share you my stories. We need to celebrate when our hope has been realized, that God did something good. We need to harvest those things and hold on to them, proclaim them to one another. Not just read stories of people that, that lived 
500 years ago or 200 years ago, that's good. But we should be sharing that with one another. One of the things I love during, during harvest season is everybody bring, hey, you got some zucchini? You, know, you need some tomatoes? How about some strawberries? Thank goodness for Don who always brings me my eggs, right, Don? And he shares that harvest. Duck eggs and turkey eggs for me this week. <laughs> but we share that. We need to share our hope. We need to share our victories. We need to celebrate those with one another and remember those things and, and, and uh, preserve them and write them down and hold on to them. So when the day gets dark again, you can say, I remember the last time I was in a dark situation. I remember the last time I felt hopeless or felt like I didn't know what was going to go on. And look, I remember what God did then. He showed up. And so we need to have our own personal harvest of hope. And three, you need to stay hungry. You need to keep wanting hope. Uh, when we plant gardens, I'm always looking forward to next year. I'm always looking forward to what's to come. Now, I'm from the South, and I like okra. And I don't make any apologies for it. And I'm simple. I like plain boiled okra. Just take it, put it in a pot. Boil it, let it good, good and slimy, and just throw down on it. Since living in Pennsylvania, growing okra has been a challenge. Summers aren't hot enough. I know y'all think it's hot, but it ain't. I know y'all think it's sunny, but it's not. If you can't grow okra, it's neither hot nor sunny. And it's hard to grow okra here. But this year... I found a variety, I got it started, and I actually was able to have grow and harvest at least one helping of okra this summer. All right? So I've learned a lot. I'm already looking forward to next summer because I'm going to plant it earlier. I'm going to put it in a different space. We're going to see that it gets more sunshine. If I have to buy a heat lamp to put on it, I'm going to have okra to save next year. Because of the experience I've had, I'm always looking forward. I'm always excited about what's to come. And, 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 I'm, and I'm filled with hope. I'm hoping I'm going to have enough okra I'm going to share with all y'all next year. And we need to have that kind of hope in our lives, that, that we need to stay hungry. Yes, God's been good in the past. Yes, God's gone, done things for us and we reap. But I'm hoping for something better. I'm hoping for something greater. And we need to spend time looking at how things end. So we get so caught right here that we forget how things end. And when we look to the end, we start to have hope. When we start to look forward to how all things are happening, then our hope will grow. One of my favorite shows to watch, um, and I watch it occasionally, is the 2017 National Football Championship. That was the year Clemson and Alabama played each other. All right. And I'm going to be honest with you. In 2017, when I was watching that, I was racked with anxiety. It was a close game. It was back and it was fourth. I couldn't sit down. I'm usually standing about three inches away from the TV because I can see it better when it's right here, I think. Uh, I feel like I'm in the stands. I, I'm nervous. I'm wanting them to win. Alabama comes back and takes the lead with like two minutes to go. I'm like, oh, it's over. There's no way. They kick off. I'm like, there, there's, there's no way that they're going to drive this field in less than two minutes and, and score. Well, the next play is about a 30-yard uh, pass from Deshaun Watson. The next play is another uh, pass down the field. They're within inside the 30, within like 30 seconds. I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe, right? Uh, there's a pass interference. They get inside the 10. There's like 12 seconds left. They call the final play. I'm just 
dying. And that's when Deshaun Watson rolls out, throws a Hunter Renfro in the corner, and that touchdown, national championship, here we are. I watched that game today very differently than I did the first time I watched it because I know the end. And so I can sit down now. I don't stand up. I sit back and sip my tea, kick up. I'm like, oh, I know what's going to happen. Watch this. Oh, I know what's going to happen. Watch this. And on that final drive when there's two minutes going on, I'm not saying, oh, there's just no chance. They're just, it ain't. I'm like, I know how it's going to end. And I can enjoy it and relax because I know the end. Folks, we know the end. We know the end. We need to look forward enough and let our hope be fueled by the end and not by the what could he, could it, could. No, we know. Even Daniel, and, and we're not covering 7 through 12 too much, but the, but the 7 through 12 is Daniel has visions of the end. And over and over, and there's several places he's like, in the end, the saints win. The saints are given control of everything. God crushes all the other kingdoms and he sets up his kingdom forever and ever and ever. And I wonder how much of Daniel's living in Babylon was fueled by he's like, one day, one day this kingdom's going to be done away with. One day that kingdom's going to be done away with. One day my Lord's kingdom will be established and it will be a kingdom that lives forever and ever and ever. And that fueled his hope and helped, him, and helped it grow to the place that he lived in utter confidence and who God was. And so we need to live in this life, remembering the end, looking forward, staying hungry for what's to come and what possibilities are out there and not just getting caught up in the moment of the day. So that's three ways you can cultivate uh, your hope. I'm going to give you three quick ways you can kill it too. Because if, it if it's a plant, <laughs> and some of, you, some of you have that green thumb, <clears throat> and some of you yeah, don't. <laughs> and so it can be killed also and quickly three things that kill hope number one the chicken little syndrome y'all all know the story of chicken little right got hit in the head by an acorn runs around sky's falling sky's falling sky's falling there's a there's a saying that says this sex sells and if you've been in the, any <clears throat> industry you know that's true that sex appeal is used to sell everything well, here's another one we need to understand. Negative drama and fear raise ratings. And much of the media exists to raise ratings. That's how they make their money. And if they focus on the negative drama and fear, their, negative, their ratings will go up. That's why it used to be on your, on, your t on your news channel, they would have that one human interest story. Right? You, you, they'd given you so much negative, they, just, they knew, well, you needed a little break in the middle, and they'd tell you some little happy story, but that, you'd only get the one. And then the rest of it was negative drama and fear so that their ratings would skyrocket. Let me tell you this. Everything is not the end of the world. And we live in a world that likes to make everything the end of the world, right? And, and we're running around like chicken little. We're out of Clorox wipes. There's no Clorox wipes. What are we going to do? There's Clorox. Yeah, you're going to have to go back to using a rag and actual bleach. You know, sorry. I'll cut, I got some old t-shirts. You can cut them up and have them, right? You know, I went, to, I went to Dollar Tree the other day. I got the last fly swatter. The last one. There's no more fly swatters in Dollar General. What are we going to do? The flies are going to take us off. I've seen that movie, Lord of the Flies. It's, gonna, it's bad. It's real bad. <laughs> Oil prices up. Oil prices are down. Oil prices are round and round and round. 
They've always been that way. And every catastrophe is not the end of the world. And if we run around like Chicken Little at every little thing bad that happens, that we're go- all we're doing is wearing ourselves out with anxiety. And when anxiety increases, hope dies. And so if you want to help your hope grow, if you don't want to kill it, you can't run around like Chicken Little, worried about every possible thing. We frenzy ourselves and we wear ourselves out and we let our hope die because of every little thing that happens. And so Chicken Little will kill your hope. The second thing that will kill your hope is obsession with real evil. Now that's not to say that there isn't real evil out there. There is. There's some real bad stuff happening in the world all over the place and all over the time. That is true. There is a real evil in this world. This is more like Babylon than we would ever want it to be like. We live in a, in a mostly pagan nation. This is true. But sometimes we got to see the bigger picture. We can't get so myopic, so focused, so like laser, like all I can see is evil. And I just see that evil and we just focus on the evil, the evil, the evil, the evil. And and that's all that we ever put our focus on. Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves there before the mighty hand of God, that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith and so sometimes when we see that evil and we deal that with evil we got to back up a little bit and look around we got to see the bigger picture yes there's a devil but he's a lion on a chain and when we're just in his face all we see is the lion and we got to back up enough to see the chain we got to back up to see God's in control, that there's coming a day when Satan's head will be crushed, that we got to see the good around us. we got to see God working. And if we focus on evil so much and we don't take time to find the blessings and the good of God around us, we're just going to destroy your hope because all you see is evil, evil, evil. One of the stories I told you about that, that uh, video session, I encourage you to watch it. One of those true stories is a story of a student who was at Virginia Tech during the, the shooting at Virginia Tech. He was an atheist during that time. He was a science biology guru. I forget, you'll have to watch it to get all the details. But what he came to realize because of the shooting at Virginia Tech, that Jesus was the Christ. And he dedicated himself to God because of that shooting. Now what happened at Virginia Tech was evil and bad and wrong. But if we don't step back and see sometimes that God uses that to bring somebody else to salvation, we miss that goodness. And we can focus so much on the evil that we miss the God who's able to use evil. Joshua, uh, uh, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. What you meant for harm, God meant for good. And if all you see is the harm, if all you see is how bad he was treated, you miss the bigger picture of what God's doing. And so, yes, there's evil in there, but don't get so infatuated and so myoptic on it that that's all you see. Take time to back out and purposely look for the blessings of God at work in the midst and in the face of evil. I think it's one of God's greatest little ironies that he takes what Satan thinks is going to destroy us and he uses it to uplift us. And that's amazing. And finally, the last thing that will kill your, your hope is a lack of Ebenezer's. <laughs> I love this word. 
The word Ebenezer is a stone of remembrance. It comes, here's one example of it from the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. It says, Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shin, and he called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. He sets this stone up, a stone of remembrance. And what that stone stood for is God's got us this far. And if God's got us this far, I think we can go on. And we need to have those Ebenezers. We need to have those, those kind of road marks in our life that God's got us this far, right? And if God's got us this far, we can move forward knowing that God's got us this far. You need to have those things in your life. Again, this is that cultivating the blessings of hope. And, and when you don't have those things, when you don't have those reminders, it's set in stone in your life. Communion is one of our Ebenezers. We, we observe this every month to tell us, God's got us through another month. <laughs> he who is faithful has carried us for another month. He's, he's, he's been faithful for another month. He, he reminds me of what he did. He, he brought my salvation. It's a marker. You need to have both public or, or corporate uh, Ebenezer, but you need to have private ones. You need to have moments in your life when I know God got me this far. I remember when God brought me back and rededicated my life to him. And I remember that moment during a, a, a summer um, camp experience when I was 18 years old, the summer before I started high school or started college. And I, God got me that far. And then I remember when, when in college, I realized I was called to do ministry. I didn't know what that was going to look like, but I remember that, that, that the rest of my life would be serving God somehow. And I, I remember that moment standing there in front of the sink and when I was in my college dorm. And I was like, it just made sense. This is what I was going to do. And I remember that moment. And I remember another moment. And I remember another moment. And I remember another blessing. And I keep looking back. And then I look and I see this track record of God getting me that far and this far and this far and this far. And that gives me hope that the next step, God can see me through that one too. But if I don't have those markers along the way, then I get to where I am and I look back and I'm like, I don't remember what God did for me. And that may be one of the, cry, the biggest crying shames of it all, is forgetting what God did. And when we have those Ebenezers, when we have those moments, our hope grows. And so I hope, <laughs> I truly hope, I have confidence that if we would do these things, if we would put ourselves wholly to God, we'd focus on Him, we'd limit the amount of negative thoughts that go in our head, we would fill it with the good promises and the stories of who God is, reminding both personal and corporate and past that our hope would grow. And if we live in this world, quite literally, one of the most hopeless situations, hopeless worlds I've ever experienced, if we lived in it with hope, people might catch it. And where does your hope come from? And then we can say... <laughs> Glad you asked. Let me tell you.